Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. In this episode, we speak with Keith Hampton of Rutgers University. Keith is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication at the School of Communication and Information and an affiliate member of the Graduate Faculty in Sociology. His research interests focus on the relationship between new information and communication technologies, social networks, democratic engagement, and the urban environment. Today we talk about his study, Social Interaction in Public Spaces. The goal of this study is to understand change in the social life of urban public spaces over the past 30 years. Keith, welcome to the Give Methods a Chance podcast. Thank you. And we're here today to talk about your work on observation and content analysis using film footage. So we'll start big picture. If you're going to introduce your methodologies to an undergraduate class who had never really heard of this approach, how would you describe it? Well, I would describe it as content analysis. And uh, we came about to this method uh, as as a result of our research question. So we had a question about how mobile phones might have been impacting relationships and interactions in public spaces. And we didn't have a good way of being able to compare that historically. So we had to find a method, or at least select a method, that would allow some sort of longitudinal comparison uh, without having to, you know, say, stand on a street corner for 10, 20, or 30 years to try and get a sense of how it had changed. Uh, So we we developed or we adopted this method where uh, we were able to use an archive of uh, film footage of different public spaces over time and do a content analysis of that to uh, see how historically those spaces had changed. So let's kind of reiterate that. What exactly was the central research question for you? And then how would you describe all the steps that you took in your actual methodological design? So we started with a research question that was simply, you know, have mobile phones changed interactions in public spaces? But it turned out that that question was probably too specific. So we ended up broadening it to uh, what has changed uh, with interactions in public spaces uh, over some historical time period. And we ended up with a 30-year time period. And then you took your own footage and then compared it to the footage that was already captured? Right. So uh, to start with, we had to find some sort of corpus that allowed us to look back in time. So some sort of historical documentation of interactions in public space. And I remember from an early class I took as an undergraduate watching uh, William Holly White's videos of uh, interactions in small urban uh, public spaces. And I had always dreamed of being able to try and find that footage and use it for a comparison. And it was just out of coincidence that around that same time, uh, I encountered some of his formal students who had kept footage that he had created and footage that they had subsequently created of urban public spaces. The first step really was to find that archive and then uh, figure out if those films were usable. And that took a considerable amount of time. They were stored in about 30 very large boxes warehoused somewhere in New Jersey, And then we were able to find those boxes and then go through them and digitalize them and catalog them uh, and then try and find footage that would be suitable for content analysis. And then uh, we were able to go back and refilm those same spaces for a comparison. Wow. And so after you did this project, uh, what did you learn? What were the core findings? 
Well, uh, the key findings of the research uh, were that contrary to a lot of expectations, people in the spaces that we studied are not more likely to be alone than they were uh, 30 years ago. So comparing this archive of 30-year-old footage to uh, footage that we took at the same spaces today, we found that people were more likely uh, in at least most of our spaces to be uh, in groups uh, and that those groups uh, were more diverse than they were in the past in terms of their gender composition. So men and women were walking together in ways that they didn't in the past. Uh, and in fact, there are many more women in our public spaces today than we found even 30 years ago. And mobile phones played a surprisingly uh, minimal role uh, that in general, they encompass maybe 3 to 10% of people in a public space at a given time. And much of that really was due to uh, increased kind of loitering behavior on, this, on the um, behalf of mobile phone users compared to other folks. Uh, so really, the key finding really wasn't that uh, mobile phones were having a big impact on public spaces. They weren't being used very often when people were in groups. They were being used when people were alone. Uh, the big finding was that uh, there were just many more women in public spaces today than there were even 30 years ago. Hmm, that's fascinating. So when you were thinking through this project, um, it's kind of unique in its archival qualities, but what came first, these big questions that you had about public space or this idea of using um, this methodological approach? Uh, well, the, the question came first. And the problem with the question was, is that a lot of research on new technologies is rather ahistorical. It really assumes that things were always so much better in the past. Community was great. Relationships were wonderful. Everybody had you know, access to public spaces, and we were encountering diverse others there. And it was just fantastic. Uh, and then today, things have just clearly gotten worse. But we really lack a kind of way of comparing to the past in, in a systematic way. And of course, the problem with studying public spaces, especially from a more interpretive approach, is that you can't just hang out there for a dozen years on, on a street corner without attention. And I can't even imagine uh, you know, what the IRB would say about that. Um, so we had to find some way of being able to go back. And then uh, this method uh, was the closest thing that we could uh, achieve. And in fact, I mean, it's really the only way that we could find to really do some sort of longitudinal study of a public space. Right. Um, did you consider any other methodological approaches? Well, uh, again, since we wanted this historical longitudinal component, there really weren't many other options available to us. We had done some other observations of public spaces where uh, we did behavioral mapping and went into spaces and uh, counted uh, mobile phone users and other technology users and then did uh, very detailed observations on them and tried to compare uh, mobile phone users and internet users to other types of users in public spaces. People are reading books and uh, magazines and just walking around and playing with their kids. Uh, but that type of comparison really didn't answer you know, what has changed over time. It only allowed us to differentiate between different types of people in those public spaces. So really, uh, we were constrained by uh, the kind of inability to do this longitudinal work and answer questions of you know, whether things had gotten truly uh, worse in public spaces than in the past. Right. And let's talk a bit about theory. How did you frame your questions theoretically, and then how did that sort of fit in with this methodological approach? Right. Well, that's a great question. So uh, I sit kind of at the boundary between a number of different disciplines. So I trained as a sociologist, uh, but my first my first academic job was in a department of urban studies and planning. 
And now I'm in a uh, department of communication in a school of communication and information. Uh, so my research interests now kind of sit at the boundary between communication issues and urban issues and kind of take a sociological framing to that. So my research questions get framed in such a way that they tend to uh, speak to a very broad audience uh, of technology folks, of urban planners and sociologists. So the question was framed about uh, around loneliness. It was framed around social isolation. Uh, and it was framed around, around the value of uh, participating in public spaces in terms of what that does for things like exposure to diversity and deliberation. So let's move into the techniques of of this, these types of studies and, and how you actually do this research. So, so how did you go about collecting and accessing your data? Um, and we can talk a bit about sampling strategy, though, though that's not probably as as central to this design. So tell us, tell us how, explain how you actually go about doing the study. Right. So there are a few steps. So once we had identified the uh, historical film, uh, it was on Super 8, uh, which is a very kind of early, widely used uh, film technology. And once it's warehoused for a few decades, it actually starts to deteriorate. Uh, so we had to go through a process of uh, cataloging the film by converting it to video, because if we wanted to be able to do any kind of sampling or systematic content analysis, we needed a reliable medium that wouldn't damage the filming further. So the first step uh, was taking these 30 boxes, very large boxes of film, and converting them to video. So we ended up with uh, just shy of about 3,000 Super 8 film canisters, um, and then about another 1,000 or so that were so damaged that we, we didn't even know what was on them. And it took us, I think, about 3,000 hours in total to convert those into video and to catalog what was in there. And we cataloged it not just for the locations that were interesting, but the type of film angles that were taken. So some of the films were, of, say, uh, Times Square in New York City, and they were a, a camera attached to, you know, at top of a skyscraper looking down, and you literally could see these little dots moving around in space, which seems very, very interesting but actually not very useful if you wanted to try and do a, a content analysis. Uh, so we then tried to focus on films that had a kind of uh, standard uh, fixed location film shoot at street level, or roughly at street level. Uh, some of them were people with cameras following people through spaces. Those didn't really allow for kind of a systematic comparison of the same space over time. So it really had to be a fixed camera location at a level where we could identify uh, people uh, and, and their characteristics. So once we identified a subset of the films that met that criteria, uh, then we had to try and pick places that we could then return to today uh, to refilm. So we had to pick spaces that hadn't substantively changed in terms of being completely redesigned. Uh, so that limited our, our focus to really about four different public spaces in this case. Uh, so then the next step was, well, now how do we go back and and film those same spaces today? And that turned out to be uh, logistically much more difficult than we anticipated. So uh, we had to try and match uh, the time of year and match the temperature of the filming from the originals uh, and match the angle of the camera so that we could include as much of the same frame uh, from both time periods, same picture frame, 
uh, in our analysis. And that wasn't really possible to do. The original films were often taken from uh, very unique vantage points that required uh, access to, to different office buildings that were nearby. So we ended up purchasing a very large monopod, which is like a tripod on a really big stick that went you know, very high up in the air. And then we had to, to figure out how to secure that properly in a kind of non-discreet way in those public spaces without attracting either attention of pedestrians uh, or authorities uh, in a way that would disrupt the kind of natural filming of those spaces. So once we developed that technique, we then went to those spaces, tried to match the time, uh, set up the camera, and then tried to stay out of the way so as not to draw attention to the camera itself, which turns out to not be very hard given that there are so many uh, video cameras now kind of in public spaces observing what's going on. We left the cameras there, uh, we watched them, we let them record over a number of different days so that we would uh, get variation in each site. And then after having collected that new film, we then had old film and new film of the same spaces. We then had to compare those two uh, films to make sure that they were filming the exact same spot uh, in each location, uh, which meant that we often had to kind of trim the area that we were coding uh, in each uh, in each time period. And once we identified a common place within each time period where we could code, uh, we then developed a coding scheme for what we were interested in observing, which in this case was uh, individual people, uh, whether they were in groups, uh, whether they were uh, male or female, um, so whether they were using a mobile phone or not, and whether they were loitering in those spaces. And any detail beyond that was very difficult to do in the kind of older historic Super 8 film. Uh, so that's pretty much what we were limited to. Let's hear about some of the unexpected challenges. You've identified a few in terms of the vantage point and, and trying to, to match the weather, things I hadn't thought of. But any other barriers that you faced when you were collecting data? I mean, the biggest barrier was time. I mean, it just took a ridiculous amount of time to complete this project. I mean, years and years and years. Uh, and that was a function of it just takes much longer than you would expect to code film uh, for content like this. So we had found some very early and limited examples of other people who had tried to do coding of, of film in public spaces. And they had always reported taking just a humongous amount of time to code a single frame. And we, we could not figure out how it was possible that it was taking them you know, 15 minutes or so to code a single snapshot of a public space we assumed that we would be able to move just much faster um, and we also wanted to do it systematically so that meant that you can't just let the kind of film run and try and catch everything that's going on you need to develop a sampling procedure so our procedure was that we would sample every 15 seconds uh, from the film and take a snapshot of that moment in time and then code the content of that uh, moment in time and compare it to the previous time period to see if the composition of people had changed as well. And that was also complicated by the fact that much of the Super 8 film was taken um, in time lapse, uh, which meant that things were moving much faster than they were in the regular uh, speed film that we had captured today. Now, fortunately, uh, well, <laughs> the complication was that it also turns out that every Super 8 camera is slightly different in terms of how fast it moves 
for a time lapse. Right. Um, but fortunately, at the beginning of every uh, piece of film that we had from each camera, there was a small moment in time where there was a stopwatch placed uh, that recorded the, the stopwatch moving at what the camera thought was normal speed, and then that, that, that stopwatch moving at the advanced time speed. So we were able to use that to create a sampling algorithm that still allowed us to capture every 15 seconds in kind of real time as opposed to this fast-forward time. So that alone took us quite a while to figure out. And then once we were able to take these 15 minutes, uh, 15 sorry, 15 second samples, uh, we then had to make sure that we were sampling the same specific place within each uh, within each film, so that we were not, say, including people in one time period that would not have been included in another, uh, just out of I don't know where they were on the sidewalk, for example. And then uh, coding the actual individuals and coming to agreement amongst the decoders as to what was seen there turned also out to be uh, more demanding than we anticipated. So it took us uh, almost 15 minutes to code, on average, every five seconds snapshot, uh, which was much longer than we anticipated. And when you have about 40 hours of film, that takes a very long time. And we ended up coding almost 150,000 people uh, in total. So if you had a student or a colleague come up to you and say, hey, I think I'm going to do a similar project, um, any other kind of practical details or kind of a trick of the trade that you would quickly warn them about before they embarked on their own version of this? Well, I mean, we say this for any method, that you really need to be very specific about what it is you're interested in before you get started. And you know, it's true for survey research that you know you need to know which hypothesis connects with every single survey question that you're asking. It's the same for this kind of large-scale content analysis. There's no going back. Uh, you know, once you get started on this road and you're interested in coding 150,000 people, you can't halfway through uh, say, "Oh, but maybe I should code for yet another variable." Um, at that point, it's too late. Uh, so, developing a coding scheme that's very flexible that's very precise, that's well planned out ahead of time, is probably the single most important thing that you could do. So um, after you collected all of this footage, what was your, and, and you were coding it, um, once you had that down, how did you actually analyze the data and, and seek outcomes? The nature of the coding really did constrain us in terms of what we could do for the analysis. So since we coded the characteristics of every individual in the snapshot, we had to use uh, people nested in time, uh, nested in different places, uh, which added a complexity to the analysis. But at the same time, there really weren't a lot of data points. Uh, so we mostly used descriptive statistics. With the exception of a couple of different analyses, we were able to uh, look at the likelihood that people would be loitering based on certain characteristics. But for the most part, uh, we were limited to, to to a descriptive analysis. So let's sort of zoom out again and um, talk about some of the the central tenets in in social research. So um, we teach our students about generalizability and validity. How did you and and your colleagues think about those concepts for this study? There were a lot of challenges here in terms of the reliability and validity. Um, I think the first challenge that we had was that we wanted to be able to sample enough places 
to try and make this study as generalizable as possible. So we knew that we had a non-random selection of places that had been filmed. And we knew that there was a lot historically going on and a lot locally going on that could change uh, the likelihood of different types of interactions happening in those places over time. And there was no good way of trying to control for that. So the best we could do was sample from a large number of places and to try and pick places where we had a lot of film of those individual spots to try and reduce the chances that error would become a pattern in, in our analysis. So that's why we, we selected four different spaces, because we felt that if we chose a greater number of places as opposed to uh, focusing heavily on just one place, it would give us greater variation, which might help our generalizability. So that was, that was the first problem. The second problem was uh, a problem with internal validity and coding this content, um, because we knew it would take so long to code uh, and we only had, you know, we have we had a budget, and that meant that we couldn't have, say, uh, three coders uh, sitting simultaneously coding the same piece of material over time. So we had to develop a way that we were sure that our coders were all coding the same thing in the same way, that they were seeing the same thing in each piece of film, but not dedicate a world of resources to watching. Uh, you know, 15, you know, nearly 15 minutes of coding per frame. If we had had, you know, two or even three coders doing that, you know, we're now talking at least half an hour, almost an hour of coding per uh, five second uh, interval, sorry, for 15 second interval, it would just have taken forever. Uh, so it required a lot of training of our, of our coders beforehand and then stopping on regular intervals to make sure that coders were still coding in the same general direction. So what we did is that every now and then, uh, kind of a regular interval, we would stop what we were doing. Uh, all the coders would move over to one person's uh, computer, and we would all code together that single frame of content. And then we would repeat that for a number of instances, and then we'd go and we'd compare the intercoder reliability to see if we were, in fact, doing the same thing. And if we weren't, then we all had to stop and we all had to talk about you know, why we were seeing something different and retrain on the moment to make sure that we were, in fact, still going to, as we proceeded forward, uh, code the same thing in the same way. Uh, so we spent a lot of time thinking about ways to do that in kind of an efficient manner. And I'm not sure we did. You know, I think ideally we would like to have had more people working on the project for more time. But at the same time, then we would probably still be coding today. Uh, so it's just not possible. But yeah, I mean, these were these were really big challenges. And the other problem is that you know something like mobile phone use, which we thought was very prolific in public spaces, and we would just see everywhere. Once we realized that in some public spaces, particularly those where there's a lot of groups, which is spaces generally where there's a lot going on that are hard to code to start with, that mobile phone use is, is the most rare in those situations, which kind of makes it a kind of where's Waldo problem. And it turns out that infrequent events are just much more likely to be coded incorrectly, that you're more likely to miss them uh, just because they happen infrequently. And that creates bigger problems for, for intercoder reliability because uh, 
if you just don't stare long enough, you can easily miss kind of those infrequent events. Um, when you were developing this project and you kind of have a unique multidisciplinary approach here, um, what was your intended audience and how did that shape some of your methodological choices? Well, actually, I don't think that the methodological choices were shaped by the audience we were interested in. I mean, that we, I, I was trained as a sociologist and the goal was to try and and minimize threats to validity and reliability more than anything else. That said, in writing up the research, I think that that was definitely shaped by the different audiences that we were interested in. We know that there's kind of a lot of large mass media type hype about how uh, people are changing as a result of new technologies. So we knew that one of our key audiences was uh, the public in general and being able to communicate the findings that we had to a very broad audience. Uh, but at the same time, uh, since I have interests that span uh, sociology and urban planning and communication, uh, I felt that this research question clearly fit uh, into all three of those camps. Uh, but it also became a bit of a challenge then in preparing the manuscript for uh, for submission for publication. Uh, you know, which one of these audiences can you target, and you know, how will your reviewers respond when you present? Um, theoretical material that often kind of spans multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we always close our interviews with a discussion first of the limitations to this sort of approach and then and then finally the the sort of main advantages. So let's start with the limitations. What were the ones that you identified? Well, I think the, the biggest limitation is probably generalizability. Uh, I mean, we were fortunate to have a fairly large number of places that we were able to observe over time. Uh, we certainly would have liked more, but again, because of just how long it takes to do this type of approach, uh, you know, including more sites is, is almost impossible. So I think the, the biggest limitation is generalizability and then probably just the time involved in doing uh, this type of analysis, particularly one that involves kind of a, a large corpus of film. Um, if I had to think of the kind of uh, biggest strengths of this type of work, um, because there is a specific interest here on, on urban public spaces, I think that the, the biggest strength is that this is truly probably the only way to do a kind of longitudinal study of public spaces. I mean, we can hang out in a public space for a month or you know, maybe even a year, you know, if you're doing your dissertation, maybe even two or three years. Uh, but doing that for two or three decades is just simply impossible. Uh, so any kind of you know, large-scale, longitudinal-type study of public spaces, I think that this is probably the only method that's available to us. Right. Well, those are all our questions. I very much appreciate you joining our podcast today. Oh, it was my pleasure. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logason, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give methods a chance. Mm -hmm.